we've been investigating Bendini Lambert and Locke for four years. No lawyer has ever left your law firm alive. Hey, everyone. This isn't Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. It's me, Michael. And on this premium episode of 5 to 4, I'm moderating a conversation about some life updates from Peter and Rhiannon. Career transitions are always hard. And when your career is a big part of your identity, it can be even more challenging. That's where two out of the three of us find ourselves today. And we're going to get into it in detail in this episode. This is 5 to 4 a podcast about how grateful we are that the Supreme Court sucks, so at least we've still got this going for us. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have terminated our civil liberties, like my boss terminated my employment. I am Peter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. And Rhiannon. Hello. As you might glean from that intro, special episode today, Mm -hmm. Rhiannon and I are going to be talking about our careers, Mm -hmm. a little life update with those (laughs) five to four. Yeah, a little switch up. Yeah. Um, And, you know, you can tell by the episode title what happened here. But, you know, Rhi, I think I'm going to hand it over to you first. What's going on in your life? So a few weeks ago now, officially, I submitted my resignation from the public defender office. I am no longer a public defender after six years in the biz. And so I'm going to be moderating here a little bit, just sort of prodding our two unemployed hosts Unemployed friends. (laughs) (laughs) Peter and, and Rhiannon on everything that's going on. So could you talk a little bit about why you left? Yeah, you know, to me and my understanding of what's going on, I think, in my career and my life, I think it is a lot about mental health issues. I have had depression for a long time, struggled with anxiety at various times in my life. But I would say for sure that the past year has been, you know, one of the most difficult in terms of that depression. And I realized, I think I was really resistant to this realization, to this understanding, but I realized how much the job was contributing Mm -hmm. to my mental health struggles and that I was really replacing taking care of myself with, you know, thinking that I was taking care of clients, right? And, you know, I think I think another way to describe this realistically, just to be like super honest, another way to describe this is like pretty extreme burnout. You know, Mm -hmm. I went really, really hard in my work uh, for six years and there wasn't ever much of a break, much of a stepping back and thinking about what I was doing and sort of refilling my cup, so to speak. And so I ran myself into the ground. Yeah. Was there a specific moment? Was this a sort of gradual come out in therapy sort of thing? Or Yeah, that's a really good question. There was, um, oh, I don't want to cry. Um, Everybody's struggling right now. Mm-hmm. Even if you stop crying, I think you should force yourself to start crying again. <laughs> it's going to be easy. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I can't say it's one moment. Um, I would say, um, you know, you ask the question and... I'm thinking about a couple clients in particular 
last year there was a client who was charged with a very serious felony, a first degree felony in Texas because of his criminal history. He is facing 25 to life at trial. And I couldn't get him out of jail. And he was one of my first clients at this new office that I was working at. And so this year, you know, I was still working on the case. He had been in jail for, you know, over a year and it just kept getting longer and longer. And, you know, there are just uh, particulars about this client's story, I think, that that just meant a lot to me. And I was working really hard and getting nothing, nothing from judges and, and prosecutors. And just to be real, like like focus it on on what was happening in my mind and in my heart. You know, this is the work of public defense. Like you're trying to get people out and and judges say no. And, um, you know, public defenders who hear this, I think, will be like, yeah, that's that's what the work is a lot of the time. And the point is that you're still fighting, like even when it's hard, um, you fight for every client, no matter how much the cards are stacked against them. But for me, like I was telling myself that and and believe that but also not taking care of myself, right? So I was having dreams that my clients were getting hurt in the jail. I was having dreams that I was in jail and I couldn't get out. I would dream that my family members were in jail and I couldn't get them out. Um, I would suffer for hours before court, after court. I'd be stuck in this loop where I'd play out like what I was going to say so that the judge wouldn't say no this time. And then the judge would say no. And then I'd replay every word and I wouldn't be able to think about anything else. Right. Um, So there's the work. And then there's a mental space that I was living in that was just like constant anguish. Right. Um, And then, you know, there were other clients. It was really just like, you know, it wasn't a moment of realization. It was more like months of grinding and being told no constantly. And then you're the one you're the one giving the bad news you're the one responsible for still fighting. You are the representative of this client who is losing all of the time, right? It is, mm-hmm. it's a loss after a loss after a loss after a loss. And when I'm asked like, what, what is the, what was the tipping point? I'm immediately thinking about specific clients, other clients who I did get out and, um, don't hurt yourself here. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm gonna. I'm, I'll just finish up with this. You know, there are other clients that I that I think about, like that I did get out, and then they died, or they were back the next day in jail, or they disappeared, and I never talked to them again because, like, there's nothing out there for them, right? You get them out of jail, which is a good thing, but um. The stress and the loss, it really gets to be a lot when that's all you're witnessing every day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you posted a thread on Twitter that was very like, that was about this and it was sort of, I don't know, for me, it highlighted like the sort of battle in your mind and the mind of like people who do this work between your need to take care of yourself and like your feeling of obligation to do good. Yeah. And I think if you're like on the front lines of the good fight and it's wearing you down because of course it does, it's hard to allow yourself to withdraw from that. Yes. Because you've, you feel like you're, you've got this obligation, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that is 
exactly it. Like, you know, I was really attached to the work. I define myself as a public defender, right? Like that is, Mm -hmm. that's a meaningful identity for me. It says something important about me, right? Mm -hmm. That's sort of where I was throughout my career. And it can become kind of everything. And when you let it be everything in your life, that is ultimately just super unsustainable because the work itself is unsustainable, right? It's designed to be unsustainable. This is a system working how it is designed to work, which is to grind people up, to dehumanize, to cage. And as a public defender, you just kind of, you're fighting for people, you're fighting for their humanization in this system, you're fighting to to honor human life in this awful system, but the system is degrading. It's degrading to your clients and it's degrading to you as as their representative. Right. I think like there's one easier way, like an easy, frankly, like cop out way to make the work sustainable. If your priority, like your top value is career longevity, like staying in the work. And the way you do that is like you treat it like you're paid to go to court and the rest is a desk job where people come to you if they need you. Right. But if you're like me and a lot of my colleagues, right, if you care about the client the person you're representing, if you see this person as a community member, a person who has a spirit and a mind, a person who is loved by someone, that's a different grind, I think. Um, You know, like you're not there to manage a docket and like docu-sign shit. That's not why the fuck you come to work, right? You come because like that person's in a cage for stealing a sandwich from Walmart. And the system demands that that person needs a representative to get out of the cage, so like in comes you and like that's my duty that's my role I'll I'll fight for reduced harm in this person's life. So like when that's the day in and day out and when you're not paying attention to how you're processing how you're caretaking yourself, your family, your community when when you're not paying attention to those things because your life is this work and thinking about the work that's when it felt like my brain kind of broke, right? Like it stopped working, right? It stopped working in the way I wanted it to. I was anxious every day. And I think like that's just, it's not a way to live. It's not a way to fight for others. That's not a way to advocate and love ourselves, which is what I always wanted to do. And I think like you just can't, you can't do anything hard for a long time and forget about yourself. Like there there just are going to be consequences. Yeah. This sort of burnout you're feeling is, uh, you know, in some sense, a feature of the system, not a bug, right? Like the desire is to grind down public defenders, underfunded, purposefully uh, burn people out so that you're, you're constantly churning through young lawyers rather than building up these this wealth of... Yeah, and, and building power, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, especially, especially in a place like Texas. I don't think like state lawmakers and the people in charge of funding public defense, I don't think they set out with the intent to like really grind public defenders to dust. But yeah, that is an output, like an under-resourced under-supported public defender system is sort of natural output of a society that like is addicted to mass incarceration, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it absolutely is a feature, not a bug. I know incredible public defenders who have been in the career for a long time. We talk a lot in my circle of friends and colleagues about how you're a public defender for life, even if you do different kinds of work. But yeah, that kind of... um unsustainable, 
daily grind is the natural output when you're the representative of clients for whom the system is designed to dehumanize. Yeah. You don't regret being a public defender, though, do you? No, no, absolutely not. I probably said this before, maybe on the podcast, but I it was a great honor to represent every single person who I stood next to in court. And uh, yeah, I don't regret it at all. I mean, the things that I learned, the things that I saw, to me, it's a necessary grappling with the reality of what it means to be poor in the United States and a reality that is brushed under the rug for everybody else. Just something that you don't see about the daily lives and the daily struggles of being poor in the United States. And I'm thinking a lot as I reflect on this and reflect on my career in public defense so far. I'm thinking a lot about, you know, the young people. People reach out to me all the time. You know, they want tips. They want suggestions. They want recommendations. How do I become a public defender? What is being a public defender like? And I still want to encourage people to go into public defense work, right? It's incredible work. There is nothing like it. There's not a job like it in the law. There's not a job like it anywhere else. And it's important work. We need abolitionists doing the work. We need good, progressive, left thinkers doing the work of public defense in leadership positions at public defender offices. And so, yeah, I don't want to discourage anybody from doing it. It's more like if I could give advice sort of looking back on my career, it would be, you know, a little bit more focus on sustainability, a little bit more focus on not making the work my life, right? And uh, recognizing that like you are representing and working with human beings that you care about every single day. And that and that care should um, should extend to yourself too. Yeah. So what I'm stuck on now is working my way through some guilt. Like, you know, like, uh, oh, I'm sitting here complaining about witnessing all of this when it's still happening right now. This is what is happening to my clients, to people in my community right now. But I think like, I think I need to decenter my guilt. Guilt doesn't serve my clients and it doesn't serve me either. I did witness and I learned and I fought really hard That system is still going to be there tomorrow. There will still be work to do next year. And taking care of me and taking care of my family is part of the work, too. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. My story is going to be a little bit more lighthearted, you know? (laughs) Thank Uh, God. (laughs) All right. So, you know, to frame this story, I got fired from my day job. Mm Mm-hmm. It was because of the podcast. <laughs> it was not because of the content of the podcast, uh, at least officially. Right. But, you know, I'm going to tell the story and sort of talk about the compatibility of doing something like this with corporate work and sort of reflect a little, I think, on my feelings about what it was like to be a corporate lawyer for a decade. Yeah. Which I've, you know been thinking about quite a bit during my unemployment. (laughs) (laughs) There's a brutality to that too, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've talked about this in the past to like varying degrees and I've been pretty forthright, unlike our Zoom events and stuff. But, you know, I I was a big law lawyer for like six years after law school. Uh, And then for several years after that, I I went in-house after big law sort of grinded me down a little bit and um, my ability to 
compartmentalize the work I was doing started to fade. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I went in-house and, you know, still at a large corporation, but doing work that was sort of like a little bit less adversarial day to day, a little bit more like collaborative and less like some poor employee is uh, <laughs> is like suing and your job is to crush them or yeah. whatever. That that wore me down and I, mm -hmm. you know, moved into a, just a more collaborative role. Are we saying where? Are we saying where, Peter? Where was that? Um, I don't want to say the exact name. Um, let's say you had a life insurance company, <laughs> but it wasn't a rural life insurance company. Sure. Right? Yeah. But it was more of a metropolitan life insurance company <laughs> right. incorporated. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and then you'd shorten it to MetLife probably if uh, just over time. <laughs> yeah. So year and change into that job, I uh, we started the podcast, which uh, at the time was just a hobby and then quickly became the most important and influential legal podcast in American history. Uh, and uh, that's right. And that presented some challenges, which is, you know, namely that I had a full time job. Uh, <laughs> and my initial goal was like, I'm not going to tell anyone about this at work because like, why? Right. Why? Yeah. I don't want people to listen to my fucking podcast and like talking to me about it. And, you know, I'm talking about politics and uh, like the Supreme Court at work. It's just, you know, and I perceived it as a hobby initially. And then it got to the point where it was sort of bizarre that no one ever asked me about it at work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we were like, you know, blowing up and getting like New Yorker pieces and Times pieces. And yeah. but my, you know, the demographic of my colleagues is like older insurance lawyers mostly. So no one was ever like, hey, are you Peter from five to four? <laughs> And, uh, you know, I had this sort of like separate job eventually. I don't know what, pe what people know about like the podcast in terms of like an enterprise, but like we only started making any money as like hosts recently. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the beginning, it really was a hobby. And then by like this year, it was bizarre. It was like I, I, had, I had two jobs. Yeah. And then one day I got pulled into a conference room. <laughs> And there were uh, lawyers on the screen from a fancy law firm. And, uh, you know, our investigations team was there looking at me sternly. And they were like, we want to talk to you about the 5-4 podcast. Rot like, row! <laughs> I was like, the, the critically acclaimed podcast, 5-4? to four? You guys want to talk about it? And they said, Peter... The fire that you're spitting on the podcast is too hot. Yeah, that's what they said. The truths are too real and you're too close to uncovering uh, <laughs> the true machinations of power in this country. And we have to stop you. Uh -huh. We've been sent here by the president to stop We you. cannot have you speaking truth to power. And I said, I will not. I will not bend to your, um, <laughs> to your will on this. I will stand up for what is good and right. Mm-hmm. This is a true story. They dragged me into a room and were like, we need to talk about 5-4. It's the first anyone at work had ever mentioned the podcast. Uh -huh. Not a single person. Not a, I don't have any friends at work that knew about it. None. Mm -hmm. And so I had, I had never heard about it from anyone before. And then all of a sudden I'm getting like interrogated. And I do employment law work. So like I know how these investigations work. And it was like very clear, very quickly that I was going to get fired. Like yeah. um, not at that meeting, but this is how these things go because- they knew everything. Like they, right. when they know everything, they've done a complete investigation. They've got like outside lawyers that probably cost like twenty five grand minimum just to just to do this. And like at some point, some fucking associate was listening to episodes of five to four, right, to make sure you didn't like divulge any client confidences or anything, right. Which, for the record, I was good about. Like, yeah, I I, I yeah. always like kept that shit separate. 
And, you know, they were sort of parading like all the policies that I might have violated in front of me and being like, don't you think you might have violated this policy? And I was like, I don't know. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, when you read it that way, sure. You know? But I was I was being pretty forthright with them about everything, like because a little tip for anyone who gets dragged into an investigator's room at work at a large corporation, especially uh, they already know. So that's right. Uh, so I basically. uh told them everything and they were sort of like, you know, they, they ended up being like, all right, well, we'll let you know. And then like a week and a half went by with radio silence because that's how it goes. And then uh, I got pulled into another meeting where they were like, yeah, we're firing you because you had like a, an outside business that you didn't disclose. And that was like the ultimate reason they gave, mm-hmm. which I was like fully prepared for at that stage. Mm-hmm. And that was that. And then I lost my health insurance. And so I had to get legally married. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You did. To the love of my life, but still. <laughs> That's right. You were already affianced. Yeah, we yeah. were engaged and we're getting married next October. But I was like, hey, can we just do it now so that I can get <laughs> insurance instead of paying $15,000 a month for Cobra? Um, <laughs> right. And so, yeah. and so here we are. I'm now a married man. <laughs> wow. Congrats. Congrats. Thank you. Uh-huh. And that's my story. He's got to be a catch, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I bet my now wife did not picture herself marrying a uh, an unemployed podcaster, but here she is. <laughs> she started dating a successful corporate lawyer. <laughs> now look at him. I'm rolling out of bed at 10 a.m., just putting on a hoodie and like playing video games uh, for, <laughs> for 45 minutes to start off my day every single day. Oh, that's great. You two have been sort of polar opposites in terms of Rhiannon has been very open about her work and she talks about it a lot on the podcast, uh, uh, even did a special. And, and you have, for obvious reasons, been very secretive, Peter, about your yeah. Yeah. your work, rightfully so. Apparently, the moment they heard about it, they, <laughs> they yeah. started gearing up to fire you. It did feel vindicating when they immediately fired me and I was like, I knew it would have been a bad idea to tell them. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> But so maybe tell us a little bit about your day to day, what you did and uh, what it was like. Yeah, I was an employment lawyer, which is just sort of like, you know, you're just consulting with HR, like HR will be like, we want to do this. And I'm like, no, (laughs) (laughs) on the sort of like mundane side of it, which is 90 percent of the job, you're just looking at employment law policies and contracts and sort of being like, here are what the risks are, whatever. You know, the shitty part of the job is like, Someone will be like, we're going to fire this guy. Tell us whether we can fire this guy. Right. Mm-hmm. And the irony of like what ends up happening is like you're consulting on like terminations of employment. And it's sort of like this thing that becomes a little bit mundane to some degree. And then it happens to you and you're like, yeah, this is right. what it's like. <laughs> right, right. Well, I love the idea that like of you being being called into this meeting and within 15 seconds, knowing exactly what's happening because you're the one on the other end. I mean, you're not firing people, right? (laughs) But (laughs) you know how this process works, right? There's a real taste of my own medicine. I mean, I I never made decisions to fire people or anything. I'm just the lawyer, right? Sure. Some business guy is like, we want to fire this guy or we want to hire these people or whatever. And I just consult. But like, you know, you're part of the process. You're part of like this machine. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's an obvious irony here. I spent a good chunk of my career especially as a when I was in law firms, compartmentalizing some of the shitty stuff, mm-hmm. right? And sort of getting increasingly woke as it went on. And, you know, that made it harder to compartmentalize. And so I left law firms and go to somewhere where it's easier and the work's a little bit less shitty. 
but you're still sort of part of like this corporate ecosystem Mm -hmm. and corporations have this like immune system where anything that is novel gets rejected there's this network of policies which you know half the company is violating at any given moment (laughs) and like hr people who all are like obligated to report right so like someone probably stumbled across the times piece about us and told someone who told someone who told my boss and my boss is obligated to tell HR and HR is obligated to escalate to the investigations team and the investigations team is obligated to look into it and find out what policies I might be violating. And this sort of like system of policies and obligations creates this sort of like inherent immune system function. Right. Sort of self-propelling. Right. Like no individual person is acting in bad faith in most situations like this. But as soon as someone saw the Times article, I was as good as fired. Right. Right. Because that's how these systems work. And for me, I like I feel super fortunate. Like the podcast is doing well enough to like I'm not we're not exactly making uh, corporate law money, but like, you know, we're making enough to sustain ourselves at least for a bit. But that's not true for everyone. And, you know, the way that large companies work is they don't want to tolerate any aberration, mm-hmm. any possible risk to them, right? right? There's some universe somewhere where this somehow gets back to them and they don't need to tolerate that risk because they have this system yeah. for getting rid of it, yeah. right? They can just fire you and, and and so be it. That's sort of the game. And that's, you know, when you're in the corporate world making a bunch of money, that's that's the price you pay as you buy into that system and you live and die by it, you know? Yep. There's a degree to which this feels like, okay, well, you're ta- you're podcasting about the law and you're also a lawyer. But like when you describe this rationale, at least to me, it's it sounds like not very different than like if you painted as a hobby and then somebody really liked your paintings and put them up in a gallery or something and, and you started making money selling your paintings. But Maybe your painting is of, you know, Jesus being peed on or whatever, right? right? And people get pissed, right? right? Oh, well, you're operating a small business outside the workplace or whatever. And and so you're fired. You know, you're out here doing something creative and I think artistic and interesting. And uh, they're like, fuck that. (laughs) Got to stamp that out immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And to be clear, you know, you get fired for not telling them. Not that it's a guarantee that you don't get fired if you tell them, (laughs) which is why I didn't. Right. But it's like, well, if you're doing something in your personal life um, and making any money off of it, like we need to know, right? (laughs) It's this like sort of full control over any like side hustle you want to get into, but also, yeah, any artistic endeavor that leads to money. I mean, we didn't go into this thinking like, let's go make a profitable podcast. Right. Not have chosen the Supreme Court as a topic. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. We didn't even know anybody was going to fucking listen to it. Right. Yeah. There's just this sort of like degree to which the corporate life is like the life that you choose and like inherently dominates any other thing you might be interested in. Right. Right. Any hobby, any other personal or professional pursuit. Right. You know, all this talk about employment, I'm very lucky. I currently work in a family business where, you know, I, I, I'm not getting fired. My my bosses are, are listeners and fans. <laughs> well, are you sure, Michael, that you're not going to get fired? Because I was told at work that we were a family too, uh, and I still got <laughs> fired. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I take a pretty circuitous path to the law in the first place, right? Like my first job out of college was, um, I was a teacher 
at a, at a private yeah. school and a coach. I uh, also worked for the Obama campaign. I waited tables, you know, before going to law school and being in corporate law. And then I left corporate law and went and, you know, helped found a PAC that helped elect Democrats and, and then finally came to my current landing spot. So, you know, we all go through career changes. Some of our paths are more winding than others. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like young lawyers or law students ask a lot about like, how do you choose a career? How do I know what I want to do? How do I make this career choice sustainable for me for a long time? And, you know, now looking back, I'm six years out of law school. Literally everybody I know has a different job today than the job they had out of law mm -hmm. school, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you went into big law or public interest or whatever, right? Like nobody has the same job that they graduated with or found after graduation, right? Many, many people I know have left the law altogether. Many people I know have completely switched areas of interest, areas of focus in their careers. I know people who have done, you know, public interest to government, corporate to public interest. I, I mean, all kinds of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that earlier in my career, I would have been more worried about this or more beating myself up over like, oh, my God, I'm blowing up my career kind of. But really, I mean, people move around a lot. It's not permanent. The first job that you get out of law school. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a degree to which like people take their career too seriously as a concept. Right. Yep. You know, career trajectories are especially now in like the modern era where people don't really care if someone has like been hopping around from job to job. Yeah. But I will say that like it's been mentally and emotionally freeing to just sort of like reject the idea of myself as like a fucking corporate lawyer um, because I felt like I started paying off my loans and then all of a sudden I had an expertise in this like corporate law and that yeah. momentum carried me until they pulled the rug out from under me. And it's like, part of me thinks, thank God, because that momentum could have carried me for the rest of my life. Yep. And yeah, I, I, I just feel like there's some, there's a degree to which this whole experience has made me like look on like what a career actually is completely differently. It's also dope to just, when people ask, not have to really say that I'm a lawyer. I can just say whatever yeah. the fuck I want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you're, who knows who might be listening right now. If you could have the job of your dreams, what would it be? Hmm. That's a good point. Um, if the New York Times is listening, I would like to submit one op-ed every two months. <laughs> and in exchange, I would like $400,000 a year. The Brett Stevens deal? <laughs> the full Stevens. <laughs> yeah, I will write something snarky about the Supreme Court and, uh, and that'll be it. And that would be my whole job. And I will not appear on television. I don't want to do that. This is just the column. <laughs> People might argue with me that Brett Stevens submits more often than that, but they're all the same fucking columns. It's like it's the same. It's like four or five that he goes on rotation. Right. In January, I'll submit something called like the Supreme Court is out of control. And then in March, I'll be like, the Supreme Court is losing its legitimacy. Right. <laughs> right. <And it's> right. <laughs> the Supreme Court needs to be reined in. Um, okay. Ideal, like fantasy world job for me. That's pretty hard. I mean, I said on Twitter and it's true. I have not thought about what's next for me because I have been fully immersed in PD life and, 
you know, like, fuck, like I used to say things like I will be a public defender till the day I die. Like I I would say shit like that. Right. And like say it with my full chest, mm-hmm. like genuinely I was that's where I was. So it's a little bit hard for me to picture something else right now. And I do also feel really, really privileged and blessed because I could not have left the job without the podcast, being able to at least temporarily sustain my life a little bit without a job, without a nine to five, without a nine to nine, more accurately. Um, (laughs) um, But okay, ideally, I don't see myself doing anything full time that isn't still in the vein of like social justice and public interest law. You know, I have this platform now with the podcast something where I was extending the platform to other people doing good work, to community organizers and and other people who are thinking and fighting and using the law as a tool for social justice. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's something out there for me, but I'm not I'm not sure yet. Me too. <laughs> Look, if I was like, like if I'm envisioning like after the revolution, right? You get to do whatever you want because we all live on a commune and take care of each other and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like I'd be doing like makeup and nails. <laughs> like hit me up at my salon. All right. We're getting you on TikTok, baby. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what I'm hearing. Five more TikTok coming soon to you. <laughs> I can see this all ending with Re just being like a TikTok influencer. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> No, <laughs> you know, Re, it's it's weird that we were on these completely different paths, and yet I think to a degree there's like a reckoning with the same problem, which is like, what is your obligation to everyone else, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and from your perspective, it's sort of you know, to what extent do I feel guilty, or should I feel guilty? for taking a step back from doing good work. And on the corporate side, it's the opposite, right? It's to what extent should I feel bad for engaging in a system that largely speaking, I don't agree with. Right. And this is true to different degrees in different corporate jobs. And I'm not really just talking about mine. And But I'm certainly talking about like being at a law firm when I was at a law firm. Sure, yeah. But you know, there's no one would ever say that a barista at Starbucks is engaged in shitty behavior because they're helping a company that union busts, right? Right. Um, or they're helping a company that exploits workers in different countries, et cetera. But somewhere on the spectrum between a barista and Howard Schultz, <laughs> you start to become part of the problem, right? That's right. And yeah. I think when you're sort of like working your way up that corporate ladder, it's hard to know when you've crossed that line or to what extent you've crossed that line. And it was sort of something that, you know, to some degree always haunted me a little bit, even when the work I was doing became like relatively inoffensive day to day. Because, yeah, you know, what is your obligation to stop helping the large companies that run our country that run our society that dictate the terms and conditions of living in America and go out and help people that need it right yeah at what point does morality require that you make that sacrifice and go do something for someone else instead of you know trying to maintain your own personal comfort uh, I don't really know the answer to that question I don't either but it feels like the same question that you're asking yourself in a different context you know yeah for sure. Yeah. 
Anyway, thankfully, we can fall back on doing God's work, podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) Blessed. And I can know now that I am serving only the highest purpose. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Too blessed to be stressed. (laughs) Well, that has been a life update from Peter and Rihanna. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Everything's going great. (laughs) We're all good. Everything's good. (laughs) We're the dog in the fire saying this is fine. (laughs) Right. I should say, you know, if you are interested, we recorded a special episode about being a public defender last year, I think. Uh, It's called So You Want to Be a Public Defender. Um, You can look for that in our premium feed. And moving forward, talking about like the podcast, I did record a really special episode that I'm really excited about with some public defenders up in New York from the Bronx Defenders. That episode is Maybe my favorite thing that I've recorded with this podcast. The fuck? And (laughs) that should be coming out soon. As soon as me and Michael aren't involved, (laughs) it's your favorite episode ever. Oh, my God. Look out for that. Really exciting stuff, at least um, with the podcast. Little uh, 5-4 extended universe going on. Yeah, that's right. Pretty interesting. Coming Sunday, October 23rd, we are going to have a Zoom event with our Arch Enemy tier subscribers, our $10 subscribers, and uh, and talk about this. Talk about, uh, you know, resigning and getting fired. So if you want to join us, hit up that $10 tier and uh, we'll see you there. Yeah. If you are only a $5 subscriber, uh, we, we do love you and appreciate your support, but um, Rhea and I do need the money now. Uh, it's no longer just something I'm going to spend on cool clothes. Uh, it's now for my rent. Yeah. Please help. <laughs> Thanks for being a Patreon subscriber. We appreciate your support so much. Uh, we will see you next week for our regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> we'll see you then. Five to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Persia Verlin, and our assistant producer is Arlene Arevalo. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Mm-hmm.